I'll meet you in Matthew chapter 3 of the Broad Bible. And we're going to read a couple of verses to get started in just a second. Before I do that, I just want to uh, remind you that it is Pentecost Sunday. And Pentecost <coughs> Sunday is an exciting day as far as I'm concerned because of the implications of what happened to us at Pentecost. And I want to talk about Pentecost today. In fact, I really want to focus this morning on the reason for Pentecost. And I don't mean Pentecost as a doctrine or Pentecost as a collective group of people. Um, you may or may not consider yourself Pentecost or Pentecostal. I I'm really not even concerned with the title today. I really want to take a look at this through the lens of the Bible through both the Old Testament, the New Testament, specifically on up into Acts. I just, I know that when we think Pentecost, a lot of times we think, well, I think I have a right to say this because I was raised in Pentecostal churches, charismatic environments. When we think Pentecost, a lot of times we just think about the gifts of the Spirit or we think about emotion or worship or shouting or in some circles, you think about falling out or running the circles around the building. And in some extreme circles, you think about picking up snakes or drinking strychnine. And it just depends on what group you're in as to what's considered Pentecostal. Sometimes you think about clothing or hairstyles or jewelry or makeup or the lack thereof of some of those. Hopefully no lack of clothes. I don't know if Pentecostals have that. Um, but just different formulas, different definitions, different styles, different kinds of ways to, to praise the Lord, different ways to preach, and we consider it Pentecostal. But one thing that is universal in what we consider Pentecostal is the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit and His role and His function and His operation as being central to what we call Pentecostalism or the Pentecostal way. And I, and I want to start today by saying that I don't think any of the first things that I said were necessarily wrong. I, I'm not in the pick up snakes and drink poison camp. You can have that all you want. Um, I, don't like, I don't like to take every single thing Jesus said literally. If he said, I'm going to step on scorpions, I like to think that's the powers of darkness, not have to take my shoes off and go tramp on scorpions. If you've ever lived in the desert, tramping on scorpions is not a good way to live. It's a good way to die. So I, I, that, that, that part, I'll leave you to you can have that if you want it. But um, I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the stuff. But I don't think it's Pentecost. I think it's a part of our process. It's a part of what we are. And sometimes it's a part of our excitement. It's a part of our emotion. It's a part of our expression. And in some ways, it's a part of our walk. Because I think the gifts of the Spirit are part of our walk. But I don't think they're Pentecost. I think the biblical understanding of Pentecost is far deeper than the emotional uh, stimulation of our worship or our preaching or our excitement. And that's why I'm excited about Pentecost Sunday. Because we get to share why Pentecost matters, whether you're Pentecostal on the door or not. Because the truth is, if you're a part of the church of Jesus Christ, if you've met Christ, you're Pentecostal. That doesn't mean you do it whether you've received the quote-unquote baptism of the Holy Spirit, or whether you've spoke with other tongues, or whether you function in the gifts. Because I want to show you today that the, the very idea of Pentecost rotated around the core essential thing that makes us not just principally Christians, but practically Christians. And what I mean by that is, I believe that talking about God is wonderful. I love to talk about God, but I don't think it's enough. I don't want to just sit around and talk about God. I want to experience God. 
download a bunch of scriptures and principles and ideas, and you and I just bandy thoughts back and forth about God, that's fun for a lunch. That's not how you live your life. If all I had was to talk about God, I would have quit church. That's right. Just think, okay, well, maybe no one else. They didn't have to that anyway, but just roll that around for a second. Because if all we have was to talk about God, what are we doing? We can talk about a lot of stuff that we can put our hands on. We don't put our hands on God. So we need more than a discussion. We need an experience. Yeah. We need something that makes God real to us. And, it's, and, and I don't mean any offense to the Bible, but hang with me. We need more than just a story in the Bible. Right. Yeah. I mean, stories in the Bible are awesome, but we need more than that. If we're going we're, we're to run this race and put our lives on the line, we need more than, hey, let me tell you a story. I don't want to live off of stories. I want an experience to know who he is. And that experience is more than a shout. It's more than a tongue. It's more than a run. It's more than a fallout. In fact, if that's all there is, I don't want any of it. That's right. If all i got to do, if my whole Christianity is waiting until I get to church to see if I can shout, and if I do, then God showed up, and if I don't, then he didn't, I'm out. Yeah. I don't want to live a life where i got to wait for a peak of emotion to figure out if I know him or not. So Pentecost isn't about the just a singular experience. This is about the practicality of realizing that the Holy Spirit came so that you could do more than talk about God. You don't have to just talk about God. Because of the Holy Spirit, you get to experience God. And not just during the worship service. And not just during the sermon. You get to experience God at every turn, in every way, in every moment. You get to experience who He is because of Pentecost. Now why? I know we haven't read any scripture yet. I'm getting you there. Why Pentecost as an experience? Well, first of all, Pentecost is a Greek word for 50. Right? Let's do this point by point. Pentecost means 50. So when you say Pentecostal, that means I'm a 50. <laughs> Essentially. I mean, that's the bragging point. I'm a 50. 50 what? I don't know. But I'm using an old Greek word to describe my faith. Okay. That's why we can do better than just saying I'm this. All right? The word means 50, and it came. It's a Greek word. It actually shows up in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But how many of you know the original Old Testament was written in Greek? Written in Hebrew. That's why in your, in your King James Version of the Bible, there's no Pentecost in the Old Testament. Because King James Version of the Bible is translated out of Hebrew in the Old Testament, not Greek. And therefore, there's no reference to Pentecost, which is 50 days. 50. Because they celebrated the Jewish Feast of Weeks, a.k.a. Feast of Harvest, 50 days after the Passover. So the Passover was the celebration of the moment when God saw the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost of the children of Israel in the land of Egypt and passed over them. Fifty days following that, they started their harvest season, and the Feast of Harvest, or the Feast of Weeks, was the celebration, the culmination of a celebration that lasted between Passover and, the, and, and that feast day. And when you get into the New Testament then, Jesus dies on Passover week, and the day after Sabbath, he resurrects from the dead. We call that Easter. And then 50 days after the Passover, seven weeks of seven is 49 plus one. Passover Sabbath is on a Saturday. 50 days later is Pentecost Sunday. Jesus ascends into heaven 10 days before Pentecost. 
what we call the Ascension Day. We celebrated that 10 days ago on the Christian calendar. The day of Ascension is the day that Jesus vanishes from the earth to go be enthroned in heaven. That's Revelation chapter 4. He's enthroned in heaven. He sets down the Lion and the Lamb on the throne of God as King of kings and Lord of lords. 10 days after that, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one place, in one mind, one accord. And the sound as of a rushing mighty wind filled all the house where they were sitting. And cloven tongues like as a fire set upon each one of them. And then they all began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gave the utterance. We call that Pentecost. Our emphasis for the most part in Pentecostal churches is on the very end of it. Where they all spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. But I think you can already see that we skipped a bunch of stuff in our attempt to get to the speaking with other tongues. Because what happens in that room is the empowerment of the church in the exact same way that Jesus told them they were going to be empowered. Because remember in Acts chapter 1 verse 5, Jesus said, John indeed baptized you with water, but I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost not many days from now. And so they were waiting on the arrival of this thing called the Holy Spirit. And they knew nothing about the Holy Spirit. They didn't know what they were in for. Jesus had told them during his earthly ministry, there's a lot of stuff I'd like to tell you now that you're not ready for it, but when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll be ready for it. Now, if I'm talking to Jesus one day, and he goes, hey, Paul, there's some stuff I want to tell you, and I can't, but someday I'm going to give you the equipment so that I can tell you that stuff. When the day comes to get that equipment, sign me up. Because yeah. I want to hear what it is Jesus couldn't tell me before. So they're excited about the arrival. They don't know what it brings, but they know it brings something. And, and I think this is the moment when the church, which is alive, because we're born at resurrection. This is the moment where the church gets her, the breath fills her lungs. This is the moment where we come alive. This is the moment where we go from, an ex, from a, a, the knowledge of God, the theology, to the experience. Because without Pentecost... We had a cross and a resurrection and a disappeared Jesus. And I want to ask you, how is that going to change your life? The cross, you go, well, the cross covered my sins and Jesus resurrected from the dead and then left. What's that mean for you? Jesus did all his work and then disappeared. Now what are you going to do? And without the arrival of the Holy Spirit, what you're going to do is just try to do the stuff Jesus did. Copy his principles, cross your fingers, and hope that when you disappear, you get to go wherever he is. Yeah, yeah. Because he disappeared, and you've accepted his cross and his resurrection, theoretically, because this is all just a, you're just talking about it. Remember, we don't have the Holy Ghost yet. We're just talking about it. Remember that story about that guy that died 2,000 years ago, and then rumor had it that he came out of the grave, and then he disappeared? Wow, let's go out and try to live like that guy. Because of Pentecost, that's not how we talk. Because the Holy Spirit arrived in the church, we don't talk about the stories of Jesus as if they're someone else's story. We get to talk about them as if they're our story. Yeah. Yeah. And talking about them as if they're our story makes them our story. So I want to go with you to the book of Matthew chapter 3. And I want to read to you from John the Baptist baptizing people. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I want to pause for just a second. I want to make sure we're all on the same page. John is baptizing people with water unto what? Repentance. What's that mean? 
That means metanoia, change your mind. John is baptizing people into a religion of changing your mind about God, into a religion of trying to turn the direction of your life, right? It's a baptism into change. Nothing wrong with change, but it's a baptism in which you do everything you promise you're going to do. The reformations are your reformations. They're your repentance. John's baptizing them. But he says there's com coming another one. Let me ask you this. Who do you think he's talking about when he says there's one coming who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire? It's okay to say it. Who, who, who's he talking about? Okay, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. And I'm not being condescending. I, I really want, sometimes I think if we verbalize it, we can walk into a truth we've walked past. All right? So that's what I wanted to try to do today. I don't want to walk past it. I want to walk into it. So we walk into it together. So John's talking about Jesus coming to do what? Baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Then listen to 12. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He'll thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now when John describes the one coming whom you and I both admit is Jesus, Here's what Jesus is supposed to do. He has some sort of fan in his hand and he cleanses out his threshing floor and gathers his wheat in the box. You don't believe the Bible literally as much as you think you do. A lot of people will tell me, I think the Bible is literally true. And I'll go, which parts of it are literal? Because yes, I believe there was a man named Jesus who died on a literal cross and rose from a literal grave. But if you mean you tell me you think every single thing in there is literal, I don't think even you believe that. Because I haven't yet seen you be so personally offended by some of your actions that you cut your own hand off and pluck your own eyeball out. Because you're hoping Jesus wasn't literally meaning cut hands off and pluck out eyeballs. And in this case, you don't believe literalism because you don't ever see Jesus walk around with a big fan in his hand, blowing it all over people and separating wheat and chaff into his barn, burning stuff up in a big old furnace. You don't see it then, you don't see it now, and you don't expect to see it in the future. Like someday, Jesus is going to come back with a big fan and start blowing it on top of people. We don't see this as literal because we shouldn't see this in the literal sense of with our eyeballs. We see this with our spirit eyes that John goes, there's one coming after me who's going to do a greater baptism. He's literally going to blow over something. That's what you do when you put oxygen onto a flame so that the flame burns hotter, but he's not just indiscriminately burning stuff up. He's actually got a purpose in that he separates his wheat from his chaff, and I want to make sure we understand that wheat and chaff come from the same stalk. I think the last time we were here, we preached the parable of the wheat and the tares. Those are two different things. But the wheat and the chaff, the chaff is the husk that comes off the wheat. It was part of the wheat. And the separation, the wheat weighs more than the chaff. And so when you blow the fan over the chaff, the wheat, everything that isn't wheat jumps up into the wind and blows out of the room. And then you burn up everything that you sweep off that's not wheat. And John goes, when he comes to baptize you, this is what it's going to look like. He's going to blow a fan over your heart and separate the chaff, which is the stuff you don't need, from the wheat, which is the stuff you do need. And he's going to gather what he needs of you into his barn, into himself. What a prophecy. Yeah, yes, yes. Now, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, John indeed baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days from hence. Which tells me, when did Mark, Matthew chapter 3, verse 12 happen? 
when does Jesus put the winnowing fan in his hand and purge his floor? According to Acts 1.5, Jesus said, it's not many days from now. And what happened not many days from now? Ten days after the ascension, what happened? Pentecost. So Jesus, in Acts 1, believed that Pentecost was the fulfillment of Matthew 3.12. That Jesus at Pentecost starts blowing the fan over the audience, over us, over someone, everyone in that upper room. And as he blows that over, everything that doesn't need to be there goes and burns and everything that needs to be there is left and he grabs it and he puts it into his own barn. He doesn't put it into your barn, he puts it into his barn. Because you belong to him, he doesn't belong to you. And so he grabs what is his and he pulls it in and he separates everything else. Now, that's retrospect. That's us looking back on Pentecost going, ooh, that's what Pentecost did. What did John think he was doing? Because I'm going to put you in the Jordan for a second. Here's John the Baptist, waist deep in water. He's been baptizing people all day long. And he has this flash. He has this revelation. Out of nowhere, he goes, hmm, yeah, I'm doing my job. My job is to get you to change your mind. But there's one coming after me who has a bigger job than me. His job's so big, I couldn't even take his, I can't, I'm not even worthy. He's so big, I'm not even worthy to be in the same room with him, to even reach down and take his shoes off his feet. I, I don't think you can understand what he's going to do compared to what I'm doing. I'm dunking you in the river so that you'll change your mind, go out and try to do better. He's going to dunk you in fire. Not so that you can come up and go out and try to do better. He's going to dunk you in fire so that he can take out of you what you don't need and then gather into him what he likes about you, what he wants about you, what he's passionate about you, what he loves about you. What I'm doing is just getting you to go out and try. What he's going to do is take all of your try and burn it up so that he can have what he wants of you. And if you don't see this as Pentecost, odds are you're seeing this as an eschatological event out in the future. And I think this is what's happened to a lot of us. We think that the Jesus with a fan in his hand is the Jesus that someday is going to burn people in hell. And John doesn't have a revelation of hell here. He doesn't have a revelation of the end of the world. He has a revelation of a man who's coming, whose shoes I'm not worthy, he says, to unloose. It's going to happen soon. And I want to ask you, where do you get that idea? Is this just a flash of lightning John has standing in the middle of the Jordan River? And he's dunking people and he goes, oh, boom, flash from heaven. I'm, there's somebody coming. No, the answer to that is no. He didn't just have a flash of lightning from heaven. Here's what they had. They had, see, we're in Matthew. This is the, this is the front half of this thing. This is the Old Testament. This is what John cut his teeth on. He doesn't know any of this, by the way. This New Testament part, he don't have any of that. What he has is all of this. Now, he didn't call it the Old Testament. He called it the Scriptures. In fact, in 1, Timothy, Paul, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy, recite the Scriptures out loud to your church. What's he mean? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? No. He means Genesis and Malachi and a bunch of stuff that we don't even consider Scripture. Read all that stuff out loud and recite it in their ear. That's what John the Baptist cut his teeth on. Now, if you're in Matthew, I just want you to backtrack. Just a few pages, literally a few pages in your Bible to Malachi 3. The reason I say a few pages is Malachi is the last recorded book of the Old Testament. Matthew is the first recorded book of the New Testament. This isn't quite as, as dramatic of a 
small step backwards if you're using digital Bibles, because digital Bibles, everything's a small step backwards, called one screen click away. So you miss the power of that moment. But if you're using a handheld Bible, you just went back a couple pages and realized you just jumped in a time machine and went 425 years into the past at the drop of the Old Testament. And about 400 plus years, about four plus centuries before Christ, listen to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will come, suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Let me stop you right there for a moment, and I want you to, uh, we're going to walk through this together again. All right? At first reading, if you read it really fast and you don't pay attention, Malachi 3.1 sounds like a rapture second coming verse. Someday the messenger of the covenant is coming. Behold, he is coming. When the, new, when the Old Testament says he is coming, they are not talking about him coming back. They are talking about his arrival. I want you to just, just look again at the beginning of verse 3. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Who's the messenger? John the Baptist. Who's the Lord whom you seek that comes suddenly to his temple? The messenger of the covenant. Jesus. we got two different messengers here. They're both preaching a message. The first messenger is the messenger of the arrival of the man. The second messenger is the messenger of the arrival of the covenant. Who's the first messenger? John the Baptist. That's why when he stands in the Jordan that day dunking people, he doesn't have a sudden epiphany. He's recalling the scriptures he was reading last night. Oh my goodness. I think I'm the messenger in front of the messenger. I think I'm the man who leads the way for the man. I think I'm the opening act. If I'm the opening act, then what's the man do that gets here? Look at verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire. He's like a launderer's soap. He'll sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He'll purify the sons of Levi and purge them like gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering and righteousness. So Malachi says there's a man coming who's going to make way for the man that's coming. And when the man that's coming gets here, he's going to be like a refiner's fire who purifies the sons of Levi. Are the sons of Levi Jews or Gentiles? Jews. What's the prophecy? There's one coming that's going to clean up his own people. His fan is going to blow over his own people until he purifies them like gold and silver. Is it possible that Malachi chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3 are talking about John the Baptist and Jesus? Yeah. Seems more than possible. It seems to be the only reason John quotes this passage. When he says, there's one coming after me whose fan is in his hand, he's going to thoroughly purge his floor, he's going to gather his wheat into the barn, and he's going to burn the chaff with an unquenchable fire. I think John presents this as the advent of Christ, Holy Spirit baptism. The moment where Christ baptizes his church. It's important because what happens at Pentecost is the beginning of what I like to call the internal cleanse. If all you had was the baptism of John... You go down into the water and you repent. And you come up out of the water and you go, I'm going to do better. Now, how do I know I'm right? Remember this? John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan. And when they come up, he tells them what to do. A bunch of soldiers come. And he pulls them up out of the water and goes, now you need to go and do better and treat people better. And they go, okay. John would be the kind of pastor most people in the American church want. 
Because what he would do is every week at the end of his sermon, he'd give you a bunch of lists. He'd go, here's what you need to do, and here's what you need to do, and here's what you need to do, because you just made a commitment to God. Now get out there and do it. And a lot of people go, that's the kind of church I want to go to. I want clear denunciation of what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do. I want someone to tell me so that I can go out and work on it. That's the baptism of John. That's a baptism in which you commit to change. Now listen, I'm all for committing to change. I think committing to change is a good start to change. If you, if you, need, if you got something that needs to change, you need to commit to change, right? But it just don't happen accidentally. Like, I'm going to learn to do something. I'm going to learn to speak a foreign language. Um, I'm going to have to change my day-to-day practice. I'm going to have to add some things in. I'm going to have to work hard at it. Or your alternate is to go, I'm going to learn a foreign language, and the Holy Spirit's going to teach me. How's, how's that work out for you? That doesn't work. So there are some things you're going to have to change. You're going to have to change. I, I don't know I'm using a silly. I'm just using a practical example. The point is you've got to make a plan if you're going to change. And I'm all for making plans to change. But when it comes to changing who you are in here, it comes to changing wants, desires, lusts, emotions, feelings. When it comes to putting them into the place of what a recreation, a new creation is. The world loves to talk about change, and I hear them say this a lot on TV shows and movies. They'll talk about how people can recreate themselves. The world's big on that. I actually think it's a great message, but it lacks something when the world preaches it. Because when the world preaches it, you get to recreate yourself into whatever you want to be, which is fine. But they don't ever tell the people that are recreating themselves that they have to die to get there. They always just tell themselves that they're really close, they just got to tweak some stuff. Like you're really close to being what you want to be, you just got to tweak some stuff. The message of the gospel is if you want to come out of a resurrection, you're going to have to go into a cross. So if you want to be a new creation, something has to die. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus versus the gospel of secularism. The gospel of secularism, you can be anything you want to be, you can change. But what you got to do is just change this, the books you read, the people you hang out with, the social media stuff you, you pay attention to, and then you'll be a better version of yourself. And you know what? They're probably not wrong. You probably will be a better version of yourself. And by God, I'd rather live in a world where people were a better version of themselves than a worse version of themselves. And so in that respect, that's okay. But that's not going to cleanse the inside of who you are. It is not a recreation. It's just a recapitulation of your stuff. You just put some stuff out of the way and organized your life better, which again is a pretty good place to start, but a terrible place to land. Better is the gospel of Christ that says, if you want to be a new creation, come into my death, walk into where I die. Now, what's that look like? Walk with me into this furnace. Jesus said to his disciples, I have a baptism that I am about to be baptized with. I cannot wait to be baptized with it. What's he talking about? In the next few days, he goes to the cross. Jesus saw the cross as a baptism beneath the fire of the walking into the fire as Paul White's sin. Yes, yes. As your evil. He walked in as everything wrong with you so that he could resurrect the new man on the earth And if we had nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, we would only have that in theory. But because the Jesus that loves you, loves you too much to just give you principles, he pours the Holy Spirit onto the church, and that's the baptism with fire. What did he say? John indeed baptized with water. You shall be baptized with the fire. Not many days from now, boom, here comes Pentecost. And what is Jesus prophesied Matthew 3 is doing? Fan is in his hand, and he is thoroughly purging his floor. Now watch this. 
Watch these illustrations. Remember, you admitted, at least with your smiles, that this wasn't literal. Right. Jesus ain't running around big fan, blowing it over people. So then with your smiles or your amens or your consent, you're admitting that it must be something else. What if it's this? Because at least this has a parallel in the Bible. The fan that's in his hand and thoroughly purging his floor and gathering the wheat into the barn and burning his chaff with unquenchable fire is Pentecost. Where a fan that blows a wind, a rushing mighty wind, comes into the house and cloven tongues like as a fire set on each one of them because his fan is in his hand and he's gathering what is his into the barn so that he can burn off what doesn't belong to you. That the fire of Pentecost is not, boy, I love that song. Let's shout. The fire of Pentecost is, I'm burning out of you everything you don't need. I'm consuming the parts of you that don't belong in the new creation you. And I didn't just do it when you got saved. I keep doing it over and over because I don't leave you orphans. The Holy Spirit will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never go away. Therefore, your baptism with fire starts in Christ and never ends in Christ. You keep receiving a baptism of fire over and over again. And you might say, well, what about the gifts of the Spirit? What about the baptism with the Holy Spirit? The baptism with the Holy Spirit is something that never stops in you. It's not just an event you go and experience. It's something that never stops in you. The gifts of the Spirit are His gifts to you, cultivated by you releasing them. You don't work for them. You don't train for them. They're gifts. They're not efforts. Right. You don't practice a gift. You open a gift. Yes. If you don't have it, you don't have it. If you have it, you have it. Yes. The end game in the book of Acts is not gifts. If it were gifts, Paul wouldn't say the stuff he says to the Corinthians when he goes, look, whether you speak in tongues or not, he goes, I do. He goes, and if you do, and you do it in public, have an interpreter. And if you don't have an interpreter, stop it. This is practical stuff Paul gives to the Corinthian church. Well, how are you going to stop it if it's uncontrollable? What if it's not uncontrollable? Yeah. What if the gift is subject to the person that carries the gift? Right. And if it means it was subject to you stopping it, it might have been subject to you starting it. Yes. In which case, we need to stop working over people to get gifts to come out of them. And we need to let them know that the Holy Spirit is a present possession and the gifts are theirs in the Holy Spirit. That seems like a way better place to start than come up here and we're going to pray over you for five hours until we get you to mumble something and then we assume you got the Holy Ghost, which by the way then doesn't really do anything in your life except make you start wearing certain clothes. He doesn't burn up any of your passions and your lusts and your anger and your hatred. He doesn't burn up any of the junk inside of you. He doesn't transform you from the inside out. All you really have is John's baptism with a title. Just a mental reform, but I'm a Pentecostal. No! And let me tell you how we know. Because in Acts 19, Paul goes to Ephesus. The Bible says he meets a bunch of disciples. It doesn't call them brothers. It just calls them disciples. Disciples are people who are following somebody. Right? I mean, politicians have disciples. Lots of them. Sports teams have disciples. Lots of them. So the Bible says that Paul goes to Ephesus and he finds a bunch of disciples. Now, then he asks an odd question. 
He goes, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, what we did in my Pentecostal days is that we preached Acts 19 as evidence that after you get saved, you need to go on to receive the Holy Spirit because you didn't get much. We would even say it that way. When you got saved, you got a little bit of the Holy Ghost, but you didn't get all the Holy Ghost. You need to go get more of the Holy Ghost. So basically, there's tiered Christians. There's Christians with a little bit of the Holy Spirit, and then there's Christians with a lot of the Holy Spirit, and then there's Christians with a whole bunch of the Holy Spirit. And when you believe that kind of doctrine, you follow the ones that say they have the most Holy Spirit. And you go, well, how do you know they have the most Holy Spirit? Because they're the most rambunctious, loudest, shout the most, do the most visible stuff. That's led us into a lot of cultic and foolish activity because we followed people who portrayed a physical Pentecost without having anything in the spirit realm. And it's because you're just going to follow people into foolishness because they're the loudest person in the room. Because we've already decided that there's tears of Holy Spirit. And that's why we drive down the street and see the other church and go, they're barely even saved. See, all they did was got just enough Holy Ghost to miss hell. Well, they had just enough Holy And I don't think we realize how insulting we're being to the resurrection and to the baptizer. That Jesus isn't in the business of bringing people in equally. He is a respecter of persons. Wow. Yeah. He'll bring you in in stages and waves. And... No, in Acts 19, Paul's not walking in going, you guys are saved, but you're not filled with the Holy Ghost. No, Paul walks in and sees a group of disciples that don't show any evidence of change. Right. And he's been there a while. So one day he calls him off to the side and he goes, did you guys receive the Holy Ghost? It's almost like a tongue-in-cheek question. I think he's smiling. He goes, hey, you guys get the Holy Ghost when you got saved? And they go, we don't know what you're talking about. Which doesn't prompt Paul to go, line up, I'm going to pray for you. No, that's not your first move. Your first move is a question. His question is, How, tell me about your baptism. And they go, we were baptized under John's baptism. And Paul says, John indeed baptized under repentance. But John baptized under repentance, telling people about one who was to come named Christ. And then Paul baptizes them into Christ and he satisfied them that they are no longer just disciples or followers. My question to you is, what caused him to ask them if they've received the Holy Ghost? I think he hung out with them long enough to realize that this was a people full of works and self-effort. And Paul's question then was, didn't you get the Holy Ghost to do that for you? And they go, what are you talking about, Holy Ghost? And he goes, "Uh uh-oh. How'd you get saved? They go, John. Here's the problem with getting saved under John. John dunks you into change and then gives you a list of instructions paul goes i want to introduce you to christ who baptizes you into his death so that you can walk in his life you see all you have is a theoretical principle-based following built around rules he says i want to give you an internal fan that blows the chaff of your heart constantly to where the Holy Spirit does the work in you that you're trying to do on your own through John's baptism. Now you might be saying, wow, that is awesome that that happened when I got saved. But I say to you that that started happening when you got saved and has not stopped and will not stop. And I don't know when 
if ever, it will stop. I know that you're going to go out into eternity to go to meet him someday, and I know that absent from this body, you are in the presence of the Lord. And who is the Jesus that you meet when you come out of this body and into the presence of the Lord? The Jesus whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose God is a consuming fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he thoroughly purges his floor, and he gathers what is good into his barn, but he burns what he doesn't need because that's the chaff of our life. I don't know when God is done burning, but I know that I have no interest in following God theoretically without the burning in my soul. And when I say burning in my soul, I don't mean excitement. I mean, I want the constant presence of the crucified and resurrected and ascended Christ in my life, doing what only Christ can do to burn in me whatever needs burned in me. And listen, we're not talking about people who are out here living hellish lives that someday are going to get theirs. I'm talking to everyone here and everyone watching and everyone listening. We are all destined to go through the fire that Jesus' fan is over. I want to go through that in Christ now so that I can live the life of the kingdom now as he burns out of me whatever he needs to burn out of me. Mark chapter 9. Let me give you one more verse. I want you to see this. We could quote it, but I, I, want, you to, I want you to at least know where it is, all right? Mark chapter 9, verse 49. Listen to Jesus. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. I think Mark 9.49 is one of Jesus' most underpreached verses. Everyone will be seasoned with fire. Everyone will be seasoned with fire. Who's everyone? So that's everybody. That was an easy one, right? Everybody gets seasoned with fire. Now, you might say, those sinners are going to burn in a devil's hell. People that don't accept Jesus are going to burn in fire. I say to you, Mark 9, 49, everyone will be seasoned with fire. That's Jesus. Let's walk through that one more time. Who gets seasoned with the fire of God? Every single person that ever lives gets seasoned with the fire of God. Don't you want that seasoning to start now so that you can live the life of the resurrected one now? That's why you're following Jesus right there. Not because Jesus had a better way than his peers, but because Jesus walked into the furnace and then went, come here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come here. And Nebuchadnezzar leans in and goes, I, how many people did we throw into the furnace? Three. Then why do I see four? And the fourth man looks like the Son of God. Yeah. What a story! Yeah. And what burns off of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The shackles that bound their hands and their feet. Let's act like they're stalks of wheat. 
What burns off of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? The chaff. Jesus was doing it then. Jesus is doing it now. Jesus will be doing it forever. He's burning off of you what doesn't need to be on you. Step into the furnace with Him. Oh, I do think there's a better you on the other side. I just don't think you can organize her. I don't think you can organize him. I think there'll be a version of you that could be better with a little organization and a little work and a little effort, but it can't be the recreated you. It can't be the you that looks exactly like him that comes out of the fire having stuff burned off of it. Is fire painful? Well, sure, there's things that are going to be painful. I don't know what that looks like. I just know I'm not the one doing the surgery. He is. I'm not talking about me going underneath the, the knife of fleshly asceticism. Now i got to whip myself with a spiritual or physical whip across the back every time I fail because i got to pay God. No, Christ is the payment. And Christ is the one with the fan in His hand. And it's His floor, and it's His barn, and you're His wheat. But you know what you don't want? The chaff. So Christ is working on you. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. Took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. Now, when we hear little kids sing that, we go, oh, look at them. They're so cute. And then they know that he's patient and he's working on them. But they're not singing it for them. They're singing it for you. You're the one God's got to be patient with. I mean, they're kids for Pete's sake. You've been doing this stuff for like decades. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. What is it I ought to be? He's making me into his image. From glory to glory. It's his work of grace. It's my privilege to be in there, in the furnace. Accept that. What's this look like practically? Well, it looks like that we don't sit around and talk about God. We get to experience God through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And we get to allow, just let him do all that he wants to do in us. What's my role? Allow him to do exactly that. In fact, seek him for that. Is that, Father, there are things that are in me. I'm not condemned. I'm not lost. I'm not unforgiven. I'm your child. But the things that are in me are chaff to my wheat. My wheat is justification and righteousness and forgiveness and identity and sonship. I'm a citizen of the kingdom. I'm on your threshing floor and I'm in your barn. But I got chaff. I got stuff that doesn't look like you, that doesn't sound like you, that doesn't walk like you, and that doesn't talk like you. I'm not hell-bound and condemned because of it, but it ain't wheat. And I don't want to be hateful to my neighbor. And I don't want to be a slave to anger. And I don't like greed and jealousy and lust and envy that's misdirected. I don't want to be beneath. I want to be above. I am what you say I am. I am wheat. But you are the fire. Cleanse me. Keep the work of cleansing me. Keep it up. Turn the heat higher in the cleansing process of my life. Walk me into this furnace and show me the finished product of what you want to do. You want to know the reason we celebrate Pentecost Sunday? We probably ought to celebrate it all the time. The reality is we celebrate it because it's the arrival of the Holy Spirit that gets us past talking about God and gets us living in God. The Holy Spirit ushers us into the furnace where Jesus stands with the fan in his hand, thoroughly purging his floor, separating out of us what we don't need. 
but pulling what he loves about us and what he wants about us deep into his heart. You are safely protected within the heart of the Jesus whose fan is in his hand. You are the wheat that he has taken his nail-scarred hands and grabbed and holds close to him. And you're allowing him to do what it is that he does so well, baptize you, season you with salt. Why not let him get started on it now? I think he's going to season the... I believe him. Mark 9, 49. Everyone gets seasoned with salt. Everyone's, everyone gets salted with fire. Old King James. Everyone gets salted with fire. Okay. If everyone gets salted with fire, you're not going to miss the furnace. So what's Jesus inviting you to do? Come on in. You and me. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live. I live by his faith who loves me and who gives himself for me. I'm crucified means I've walked into his furnace, but I'm like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm still alive. I'm walking around in there with Jesus, whose nail-scarred hand holds mine. And he looks over at me and says, you and me. Paul got it in 2 Corinthians 5, and he says, we thus conclude that if one man died, all men died. In other words, if one man went into the furnace, he put the whole world into the furnace with him. So you go, well, then why do I need to go? Why do I need to acknowledge and go into it? Because don't you want to live the life that he's offered you now? Don't you want to live the life that has been procured for you by Christ now? And if you think I'm still talking to people that are unbelievers, you haven't listened to this sermon. This isn't about sitting here going, heads bowed, eyes closed. How many of you here don't know Jesus and want to meet Christ? This is about saying to all of us, we walk into the furnace with Jesus and we take our hands off of the stuff that we've been holding on to through John's baptism, working on through our own effort, and we receive His Pentecostal fire that burns and consumes what doesn't need to be there and keeps burning and keeps consuming and we just release more of that to him every day hands off of this hands off of this father i thank you today as everyone in this place i just want you church just to take a moment just just your head is bowed and you're just you don't you don't have to quote 10 scriptures you don't have to have remembered 90 percent of what i said i just want you to concentrate and dwell on the reality that Pentecost happens, which means the Holy Spirit came and the fan blew and the fire fell. And that that can't be confined to the way we have church. There's something far better. And it releases us from just the baptism of repentance. It releases us from simple, change my mind, going to try to do better religion. And it puts us into the furnace of His love. Yes, the furnace of his love. Because that's what he's doing. And I want everyone here. Let go of the chaff. Recognize that there is probably still some stuff about you the Holy Spirit wants to work on. And let him. Take your hands off your John's baptism and put your hands onto your Christ's baptism. Lord, this isn't about me going to work on this area of my life. This is about you burning out this area of my life. And as you show me what about me changes as a result of it, 
I want to walk into that new creation. This isn't the reorganization of a bunch of slop so that I'm just a little bit better organized. This is death to the junk that doesn't need to be there. Whatever it is, do your work, Father. Do it in me. Do it in us all. Everyone's going to be seasoned by fire. Let our seasoning begin so that we can walk with that one who is the Son of God in the fire of our heart. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God.